Well, good day, everyone. Thank you so much for being here, and thank you so much for listening. We're continuing our examination of the fundamental questions that God answers for us throughout the Bible, throughout the Christian scriptures. This is really our sixth look at the Christian scriptures, looking at these fundamental questions. And today we're going to be looking at what happens when we die, what happens when a follower of Christ, a believer, dies. Most of you here have been to funerals, and I find that the older we become, the more frequent funerals seem to become a regular part of our lives. And they're very interesting times. Of course, they serve as a time of deep grief and sorrow as we are there uh, witnessing the passing of a family member or a dear friend. They serve as a time of reflection. And for the follower of Christ, even a time of hope. And I'm always amazed at the insight and wisdom of people who have grown into very advanced ages and how the world has changed in their lifetimes particularly people who reach well into their 90s like my grandparents did or some of my grandparents who so often far outlive so many other people in their lives and the wisdom and the nuggets of truth that they're able to pass on to us younger people as we listen to what they have to say. As many of these folks have witnessed the passing of close friends who perhaps they sat next to when they were at the elementary school and their childlike innocence And as time goes on, family members such as mothers, fathers, brothers, and sisters inevitably have passed away. One spouse inevitably will outlive the other, and in some especially sad cases, a parent may even have to say goodbye to one of their own children. And as a minister, I've presided over my fair share of funerals. There's always a contrasting environment at these moments, and you know this as well as I do. We see people at funerals that we haven't seen for many, many years. And it can be a reunion of sorts, this exchanging of memories from lifelong friends. There can be laughter, surprises, and much, much more. But at some point, everyone, regardless of their religious beliefs, they will stand over the body of a departed loved one and wonder, is this it? Is this all there is? Will I ever see them again? And today we will begin to look at a a multi-part look at the destiny of a believer under the series of the Christian Scriptures. And recall that I have said and firmly believe that a worldview must answer four basic questions. Origin, meaning, morality, and destiny. And we're dealing with destiny today. And not only must the worldview answer these questions, but the answers must be coherent. They must make sense in the larger scope of the worldview, and I believe they must provide some existential relevance. Now, the Apostle Paul acknowledges this in a very blunt statement he makes when he says, if Jesus has not been raised from the dead, if he's not been resurrected, then there is no hope beyond the grave. He says in 1 Corinthians 15, 32, if the dead are not raised, then let us eat and drink, for tomorrow we die. Now, I'm going to begin today's message from a book of the Bible that is typically a little bit more obscure. I would say most people have heard of it, but it rarely shows up on the top five of anyone's favorite books in the Bible. And I would go ahead and invite you to locate the book of Ecclesiastes in the Old Testament. It's a little bit more difficult to find than maybe some of the more high-profile books in the Bible. And this is a passage that I often share at a funeral, and much like at this moment, It might seem an odd start to a message 
dealing with death in which most of us would expect to have much hope and encouragement to be delivered. And I pray that we get to that point, but we shall begin here. This is Ecclesiastes chapter 12, and I'm going to read seven verses. We read, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth, before the evil days come and the years draw near, of which you will say, I have no pleasure in them. Before the sun and the light and the moon and the stars are darkened, and the clouds return after the rain, and the day when the keepers of the house tremble, and the strong men are bent, and the grinders cease because they are few, and those who look through the windows are dimmed, and the doors on the street are shut, when the sound of the grinding is low, and one rises up at the sound of a bird, and all the daughters of song are brought low. They are afraid also of what is high, and terrors are in the way. The almond tree blossoms, the grasshopper drags itself along, and desire fails, because man is going to his eternal home. And the mourners go about the streets before the silver cord is snapped, or the golden bowl is broken, or the pitcher is shattered at the fountain, or the wheel is broken at the cistern, and the dust returns to the earth as it was, and the spirit returns to God who gave it. A little bit about Ecclesiastes as we move forward. It's not going to be our primary scripture that we're going to learn from today, but I believe it's important to set the stage of the reality of both dying and death. Ecclesiastes is a book written by King Solomon, and if any of you are familiar with Solomon, you know that he was famous for two things, his unmatched wisdom and his extravagant wealth. Ecclesiastes fits into the genre of wisdom literature in the Bible. Solomon is nearing the end of his own life, and he's reflecting over his many years, over his many experiences that were certainly very varied and influential in his life. He has seen many seasons come and go, both in the literal sense as summer turns to fall, fall to winter, winter to spring, and then back to summer, but he has also witnessed seasons of life war, peace, famine, prosperity, life, and death. In fact, Solomon's writings inspired a famous song entitled Turn, Turn, Turn by the Birds. And in this excerpt from Ecclesiastes, Solomon reflects on the fragility of the human condition. He writes the keepers of the house. Now these are our hands, and he writes how they begin to sometimes tremble as we enter into old age. The grinders cease, they stop because they are few. This referring to our teeth, the older we get, the fewer teeth we seem to have. Those who look through the window are dimmed, our eyes lose their sharpness and it becomes more difficult to see. All of a sudden we're having to put glasses on to help us see things that once were so clear and sharp to us. The almond tree blossoms. Now, we don't have almond trees around here, but when they blossom, they are white, like the white or gray hair that sneaks on to the top of our heads as we age. And finally, the bowl, the pitcher, and the wheel at the cistern is broken. Here, water is the idea. Water being viewed as the source of life can no longer be held in those containers as life ends and the spirit returns to God. Indeed, death, no matter when or how it comes, is deeply painful and a reminder of our sinfulness, our fragility, and our mortality. 
Ecclesiastes is framed by Solomon in an interesting way, and much of it is from his own experience and point of view. Throughout the entire book, Solomon uses the phrase, under the sun, under the sun, multiple times. In fact, he uses it 29 times, and it's a Hebrew idiom, a figure of speech that means living life outside of God or living life apart from God, that we may try to do many things apart from God under the sun, but it ultimately will turn out to be futile. He writes about this. The result of this type of living is, he says, I have seen everything that is done under the sun, and behold, all is vanity, a chasing or a striving after the wind. And he closes, the end of the matter is this, after all has been heard, fear God and keep his commandments, for this is the whole duty of man. Living life apart from God is hopeless. It's all vanity. We may chase after the wind, but we'll never catch it. And when we do close our eyes in death, those who are left behind will wonder what happens. And as the source of our understanding of God, we turn to his word, the Bible, for answers. And thankfully, there are many answers in this case. And while there certainly will remain an air of mystery about the great beyond until we pass away ourselves and behold God's glory, the Bible does have much to say about dying death and the hope, in particular, believers have in Christ as a result of his accomplished work on the cross and his resurrection. So our framing question for today is this. What does the Bible have to say about what happens when a believer dies? Now, there are several places that we could look that would provide great encouragement and great clarity on this topic, but we're going to look at a passage from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. This is Paul's second letter to the church in Corinth dealing with many, many issues. And these, these are the first 10 verses of chapter 5. I would invite you to find that with us this morning, a little bit easier to find perhaps in the book of Ecclesiastes. 2 Corinthians is in the New Testament, again, chapter 5, beginning in verse 1. Paul writes, For we know that if the tent that is our earthly home is destroyed, we have a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. For in this tent we groan, longing to put on our heavenly dwelling, if indeed by putting it on we may not be found naked. For while we are still in this tent, we groan, being burdened, not that we would be unclothed, but that we would be further clothed, so that what is mortal may be swaddled up by life. He who has prepared us for this very thing is God, who has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. So we are always of good courage. We know that while we are at home in the body, we are away from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. Yes, we are of good courage, and we would rather be away from the body and at home with the Lord. So whether we are at home or away, we make it our aim to please him. For we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ so that each one may receive what is due for what he has done in the body, whether good or evil. So let's examine these verses here from 2 Corinthians chapter 5. As I already referenced, Paul wrote this letter to the church at Corinth to answer many deep questions they had. And one such question addressed the challenges that they had had in this life and their eternal glory after death. Paul was calling on them to persevere and to find hope not only in this life, but in the life to come. And I love that immediately here, 
Paul is confident enough to say, we know. Christians can know what the world beyond this one is like because we know what God's eternal word says. Certainly painful as death is, for the Christian, we cannot merely hope that there is hope beyond the grave. We can know there is because of Jesus' victory over sin and death, but more on that a little bit later. Paul thinks and references our bodies as tense here. Perhaps that's a little difficult to see at first, but Paul himself spent much of his ministry as a bivocational missionary, and he was a tent maker. And he it is a telling metaphor here as he views his body and our bodies as tents. Our body is a temporary dwelling that cannot be thought of as the whole and complete person. One day, this tent, your body and my body, will indeed be destroyed. It will become increasingly fragile. It's not something that we welcome with open arms and we love, perhaps, but it does. And it will one day eventually give out. But we still have an eternal hope that there will be a building from God, a house not made with hands, eternal in the heavens. And when Paul says that our body, our tent, will be destroyed, it's the same word used for striking down a tent, for taking down a tent, a dwelling here on earth. One day our time on earth will expire and God will strike the tent and we will each receive a new dwelling from God and this will be our new state for all eternity. The Bible reveals to us that we are more than just our physical bodies. We have a soul or a spirit and a physical body. The Bible, in most cases, seem to use the word soul and spirit synonymously. So we are more than just a physical body or a carbon-based life form. These immaterial parts are obvious even though we can't touch them. The immaterial aspects are untouchable, our soul, our spirit, our intellect, our will, our conscious, our emotions, our mind. These exist beyond the lifespan of the physical body. Our future bodies are not made with hands. God specifically makes them for the environment of eternity in heaven. Jesus gave us encouragement in John chapter 14, one of the most comforting chapters in all of Scripture, as he says, In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you, I go to prepare a place for you. Now, according to the literal wording of that very famous and well-known verse, in the ancient Greek, the word for mansions is translated dwelling place or a place to stay. But certainly, it would be keeping in God's goodness and His grace to bring us all together in a glorious mansion of sorts to be together as a family of believers, a place that Christ has preparing for us. So salvation isn't just for the soul, but it is for the body also. Resurrection is how God will one day save our bodies, a new and glorious body that is to come. Charles Spurgeon, who's known as the Prince of Preachers, says this about our resurrection bodies, that the righteous are put into their graves weary and worn, but as such they will not rise. They go there with a furrowed brow, the hollowed cheek, the wrinkled skin, but they shall wake up in beauty and glory. But I'm not going to get started today on the resurrection, though certainly that would be a worthy sidetrack. 
Next week, I hope to look much more at the resurrection. So then we detect a shift in tone from the Apostle Paul as he begins to introduce this idea of being, of this earthly tent being tore down and and being in heaven forever. He says, for in this we groan, we groan in this body. There is an unsettled nature to our existence. We indeed We'll get to a point where we long for this glorified state. We long to shed these physical tents and receive our heavenly dwellings. It's not that we want death to come or that we have an unhealth, unhealthy thoughts as Christians, but it's a recognition of the hope that we have. Because to God, the body itself is not a negative. The problem isn't in the body itself, but it is the fact that it is sin-corrupted, these fallen bodies that we live in. Paul then uses some more vivid imagery, and he states that mortality may be swallowed up in life. We are mortals with mortality, and this body that you and I have is subject to death. But our new bodies will not be subject to death. Instead, Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, death is swallowed up in victory. When we receive our eternal bodies, life completely will conquer death. And there's an image here that is elicited of a snake swallowing up a mouse, if you will. If a snake swallows up a mouse, the mouse is completely conquered. It's no more. Even so, death will be swallowed up in life. And then Paul says this, and this is a very famous scripture, and I want to emphasize it. He says, so we are always confident, knowing that while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. We are confident, yes, well-pleased, rather, to be absent from the body and to be present with the Lord. God is preparing us right now for our eternal destiny. And Paul connects the idea of this affliction with the eternal weight of glory later on in this chapter. But the hope that we have in Christ is not just for the afterlife. God, or Paul says that God has given us the Spirit as a guarantee. When there's trials on this earth, we can take comfort in our heavenly destiny. And God gave us the Spirit as a guarantee. He backs up the promise right now with the Holy Spirit dwelling within the heart of believer. And then he gives us the statement that has become a great source of comfort and reassurance for Christians throughout for many generations. He says, while we are at home in the body, we are absent from the Lord, for we walk by faith, not by sight. He says, right now the presence of God is a matter of faith. We are home in the body, so there's a sense that we're absent from the Lord, at least for his immediate glorious presence. And to walk by faith, not by sight, is a very great and difficult principle of Christian living. It means that we make faith a part of our daily activity. And I think Paul's choice of words here is telling, as he says, walk, walking by faith. When you think about walking, there's nothing remarkable about it, nothing particularly extraordinary. And yet God admonishes us to walk by faith. It implies and calls for consistent and persistent faithfulness. But then again, this great statement that has become a source of great comfort and hope, what happens to a believer when they die? Paul says to be absent from the body means we will be present with the Lord. The truth that to be absent from the body means that we will be present with the Lord immediately proves two false doctrines to be just that, false. 
First of all, it refutes the false doctrine of soul sleep. Some people believe that when a person dies, they essentially sleep unconscious, unaware of anything until the end, the final end of all things. And also the second one would be the doctrine of purgatory, believing that somehow that we go to a state that we must be cleaned up and cleansed enough before we come into the presence of God. Certainly, neither one of those are true. Paul says that the moment a believer dies, to be absent from this body is to be present with the Lord. So what are some takeaways from this as we can really kind of come down and narrow down and answer these questions? And so rather than some applications here, I want our takeaways to be in the form of answers to some essential questions. One, does a Christian immediately go to heaven when they die? Bluntly, yes. Yes, they do. Certainly, we've seen this teaching from Paul's inspired writings from 2 Corinthians 5, but there are other areas in Scripture that we can gain this assurance from as well. We can allow Scripture to interpret Scripture in this instance and provide some additional clarification. And my favorite example comes from what is simultaneously a dark moment and a glorious one. In Luke 23, near the end of the Gospel of Luke, as Jesus is being crucified, he is between two criminals on the cross that are on either side of him. And near the end of this horrid event, one of the criminals who had been hurling insults at him has a deathbed conversion that Jesus welcomes. We read in verse 39, One of the criminals who were hanged railed at him, saying, Are you not the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the other rebuked him, saying, Do you not fear God, since you are under the same sentence of condemnation? And we indeed justly, for we are receiving the due reward of our deeds, but this man has done nothing wrong. And he said, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, Truly, I say to you, today you will be with me in paradise. I believe the Bible clearly teaches that while our bodies will be buried or remain behind, our souls will immediately go and be in the presence of the Lord. When we die, we are aware of this presence. We enjoy the presence with Christ, and we also enjoy the presence, and, and we are with all many other believers who have previously departed. Now, this is not our final state. The Bible also clearly teaches that we will be physically resurrected. Again, that's next week. But we are in an intermediate place with Christ that Jesus refers to here as paradise. So the next question, what do we look like in the meantime? I think people have a lot of ideas. Will we look kind of erythral, perhaps, like Casper flying around? Certainly there is some mystery to our appearance in this intermediate state. Clearly it's our soul, our spirit, that is with God, not our physical bodies. And some people may object, saying we're getting a little too metaphysical here, but we deal in these terms all the time. Again, we have a physical body, but everyone acknowledges that we have immaterial aspects as well. Again, our mind, our consciousness, our feelings, all of these things we can't touch, but we certainly know that they exist. So what does the spirit look like? Well, the short answer is I don't exactly know. But the Bible gives us some indication, I believe, during an event 
that we have called the Transfiguration. The Transfiguration was a powerful moment in which Peter, James, and John witnessed Jesus glorified. And at that moment, Moses and Elijah appeared and they're talking with Jesus. Now, Moses had long since died and been buried before this moment. The prophet Elijah had a dramatic earthly departure to heaven in a chariot of fire, but the point is the resurrection obviously had not taken place yet. However, Moses and Elijah were there speaking with Christ, and they had appearances that were recognizable. Therefore, I certainly believe that our intermediate state in heaven before the resurrection will somehow resemble our physical appearance, will be recognizable as we are. It just will not be our final, physical, glorified, resurrected body. And the next question would be, where is this paradise or heaven while we await the resurrection? So, in the Bible... When the word heaven is used by the biblical authors, it's referring both to the sky or even the cosmos and the place where God and his angels dwell. Now, they may be related, but they're not identical, and they're used to show the transcendence of God. Now, this is challenging to answer, so I want to borrow some commentary from a theologian named Ben Dunson. This is what he says, that God dwells in heaven, yet he is not contained or constrained by it in any way. In fact, heaven is God's own creation. So to say that God is in heaven is another way to say that he transcends his own creation. We know that Jesus has a physical body that has gloriously been raised from the dead, and it is residing somewhere, even though we know very little, physically speaking, of what kind of place that somewhere is. We can't point to it on a map, of course. And it's tempting to speculate about all of this, and wisdom keeps us tethered to what is clearly revealed in the Bible. The scriptures are not concerned with identifying for us the physical location of heaven. Based on what we see in scripture, it seems best that we explain it not as some concrete place in normal space and time, but as an entirely different kind of place, a realm that transcends our universe even as it often breaks into our own when angels appear to human sight, for example, or when God has shown himself to his people. What is central to the biblical teaching is not where heaven is, but what it is. Heaven is where God dwells in unapproachable light for his awesome majesty. Death is gain for believers because we enter heaven, the place where we come into the fullness of Christ's loving presence in a holy and completely new way, which is better than life itself, and it is the place where sin, sickness, and sadness are no more, and where we live in perfect fellowship with Christ forever. Finally, we can view life as a pilgrimage. What is the difference between life as a journey and life as a pilgrim? Common vernacular or common cliche to say that life is a journey, less popular to say that we are on a pilgrimage. Well, perhaps I'm being too nuanced here, but those who are on a journey are just traveling through life, hoping to encounter some impressive sights and thrills along the way. But for those who are pilgrims, they know the final destination, and they are traveling for sacred reasons. Again, we can look back to the groaning, unsettled nature to our existence. We long for something more because there is something more. We long for something greater because there is something greater. C.S. Lewis Lewis captures this stunningly. 
in his description of time. I believe personally that this is something that we have to read, ponder, reread, and reflect upon. I don't think we'll receive quite the punch from it in one cursory, cursory reading, but I do want to share it with you. As he wrote this at one point, he said, We are so little reconciled to time that we are even astonished at it. How he's grown, we exclaim. How time flies, as though the universal form of our experience were again and again a novelty. It is as strange as if a fish were repeatedly surprised at the very wetness of water, and that would be strange indeed, unless, of course, the fish were destined to become one day a land animal. This is not our final home. We are on a great and glorious pilgrimage to a city that is built by God. Time goes by ever so quickly, a lesson that many of you understand far better than me, though certainly it's a realization I see more and more every day. We're traveling through life as a pilgrim toward a glorious final destination in which we will be ever, forever with the Lord. To be absent from the body is to be present with the Lord, but there is even more good news. The bodies that we place in the ground will not stay there forever, and we will learn what will happen next week. For now, I'll close with a reminder that we're just passing through. The author of Hebrews in the New Testament wrote of the great champions of the faith and invite us into that victorious heart as well. He says, These all died in faith, not having received the things promised, but having seen them and greeting them from afar, and having acknowledged that they were strangers and exiles on earth. For people who speak thus make it clear that they are seeking a homeland. If they had been thinking of that land from which they had gone out, they would have had an opportunity to return. But as it is, they desire a better country, that is, a heavenly one. Therefore God is not ashamed to be called their God, for he has prepared for them a city. And dear friend, he has prepared for you a great city as well. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, for those who have put their faith in Christ, the answer of our final destiny has been answered. When we close our eyes in death, we will open them again in the presence of Christ our Lord. Thank you. This provides comfort when we say goodbye to those we love, reassurance as we grow older, and a hope in this life as we live to serve you. As the Apostle Paul said, whether we are at home in our earthly bodies or away from them in your presence, May we make it our aim to please you. And if there is anyone listening that has not accepted Christ as their Savior, we ask that their hearts would be drawn to you and that you would even use us to lead them to Jesus. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.